Welcome back to the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. Sentientism answers those two deep questions by committing to using evidence and reason and having compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I talk to Christopher Sebastian. Christopher is the Director of Social Media for the Peace Advocacy Network. He sits on the Advisory Council for Encompass, is a Senior Fellow at Sentient Media, uh, is co-founder of VGN, lectures at Columbia University in the Department of Social Work for the graduate course POP, Power, Oppression and Privilege. Using a multidisciplinary approach that includes media theory, political science and social psychology, he focuses on how human relationships with other animals shape our attitudes about race, sexuality and class. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the podcast as a whole, so why not write us a review or give us some stars on your listening platform? Every share, review, and rating helps us nudge a few more people towards compassionate, rational thinking. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info or just search for the word sentientism on your favorite social media platform. You'll be made welcome in any of our global community groups. They're open to anyone interested in these ideas, not just sentientists. Why not follow us on Twitter at sentientism too? Thanks for listening. Good morning, Christopher. How are you? Good morning, Jamie. I'm great. How are you? Yeah, doing good. Thanks, doing good. Looks like you're in a sunny Prague at the moment. So, I absolutely am, and it is a sunny day, which has not been the case all week long. But yeah. but today is really great. So, thank you so much for making the time to join this series of sentientist conversations. And it's good to turn the tables because uh, you interviewed me uh, for your recent Euro News piece about Wuganism, which I loved. So it's great to be able to turn the tables. And as we've discussed before, I guess we focus on the two deepest philosophical questions here. What's real? How should we understand the universe? And what matters morally? And I'm asking those questions with an obvious bias because I'm trying to popularize and develop this idea of sentientism, which says that uh, when it comes to what's real, we should take a naturalistic approach that uses evidence and reason. Um, And when it comes to what matters, we should care about or have compassion for every being that's sentient, every being that has the capacity to experience suffering and flourishing. But I'm very interested in people's personal journey. So I'm talking to people who agree or disagree with parts or all of that uh, simple philosophy. But before we get onto those questions, how would you best introduce your life and your work and your activism? I am a journalist, um, a digital researcher, and a a student of mass communications, if you will. I primarily work in social media and obviously in digital media spaces. Yeah, that's great. Well, it's great. good to have you here. And we'll talk a lot more about the themes of your activism as we come to the latest stages of the conversation. So the first question, what's real? For many of my guests, that's a story about whether they grew up originally in a sort of naturalistic, scientific-minded family and social context, or in more of a religious, supernaturally driven worldview, and how their that side of their philosophy has shifted over time. So you can wind the clock back as far as you feel comfortable and let us know where you are now too. Oh boy. Okay. So let's take the clock all the way back to the beginning. I definitely did not grow up in a naturalist or a very, an atmosphere that was grounded in, in the natural sciences. My, my family was and is deeply religious. Like my grandparents are Catholic. My mother is AME Zion. So African Methodist um, Episcopalian. And so like I, I have always lived in a, like a very religious family. And we took that very seriously. In fact, I grew up going to Catholic school. And I think, yeah, I went to Catholic school until the eighth grade. And then I went to a normal secular high school. So my experiences have always been rooted in Christianity. I have shifted to an atheist slash agnostic space in my adulthood. And it's really weird for me because I do still adhere to a lot of the traditions of the Christian church. And I use the term Christian very broadly because like my family's traditions have been all over the place. But yeah, like I do, I definitely recall like questioning that at a very early age, particularly as a queer person, because like my queerness has always been a part of my identity for as long as I can remember, like way back, well before any type of sexual awakening, like it it was always present. I knew that I was like very different from the other little boys growing up, if you will. But like independently of that, I just had a lot of questions. I just recall being in the third grade and I, I remember like we would say our prayers in the afternoon. 
And one of my friends actually raised their hand and said, oh, I would like to pray for my friend's mother because it was a great tragedy in the school. His, his friend's mother had committed suicide and everybody knew about it. And just very, like, very, not casually, but just in a sort of matter of fact way, the teacher said, oh, no, we can't pray for, for her because she killed herself and that's a sin. So she's just in hell. And I just couldn't square that circle in my mind i'm like that that seems i don't even know what to make of that information because that that just seems inconsistent with the story that we were being given about god the universal image compassion and love yeah not yeah for like all of these not for her though not for her and like we were praying for we were praying for people's goldfish and things like that and so this is like oh okay that seemed like such a good idea to me oh we'll pray for this woman and then having this discovery that like praying for her soul was just not something that we could do because it was too late for her. And so I'm like, this is like this sort of binary between the benevolent, like compassionate God and the vengeful, vindictive yeah. sort of rules driven God just didn't work in my mind. And that was just one of the first times that I really started considering it. But of course, because all of these other things are also operating at the same time with I don't want to say your indoctrination, but well, your indoctrination into the church. You just like that sort of inertia that you, you experience just pulls you back to what's safe and comfortable because this is what you already know. Yeah. So questions would pop up from time to time and these inconsistencies, but then you get right back to it because this is what everyone else is doing and that seems perfectly normal. Right. Of course, yeah, you just go with the flow unless these things seem normal to me or I, they just were not compatible with the things that I wanted to explore or the way that I understood life and my experiences. And of course that came up like with my queer identity asserting itself after puberty and you just have these questions. It's, I am a good person, or at least I would like to think of myself that way. Mm. And I'm doing everything else that God wants me to do. But there's this one thing that would prevent me from actually being like ex experiencing God's grace. And so I just really, I really didn't know what to do with that for a very long time. And boy, did I try. And it just, it, it wasn't working out for me no matter yeah. what. And so I'm like, I eventually I have to, I have to let this go. Some people are able to do that and, and still maintain their Christianity. Some people like explore historically what, is meant by the Bible and like certain verses and the context in which certain things were, were said. And I absolutely respect that. But for me, that wasn't the path that I followed. It wasn't a very, I ended up going a very secular route and, and abandoning Christianity like altogether. It just, it didn't seem to make sense. I couldn't make sense of it. Yeah. And in those early days, were you, were you just going with the flow and keeping your head down or were you kicking back at school or in family and asking awkward questions. What was that experience like? Was it more of an internal constraint you put on yourself or did you feel a sort of societal pressure? To it was absolutely on? internal. I yeah. carried on. Like, yeah. I was not like, I am like, I was, and still am a very introverted person. As a child, I was very conflict avoidant. Why make waves? I'm just yeah. going to keep this to myself. And this whole thing is just going to happen inside of my head. And keeping it in my head was like, that was a constant struggle. Probably not the healthiest thing either, but here we are. And as you, I guess, actually moved away from Christianity, acknowledged that more clearly, how did that feel? Again, both internally, but also your family is still religious and so on. You know, has that presented challenges or are they pretty comfortable? It did present challenges at first, specifically around queerness, because yeah. there are so many ways in which like you can be compatible with Christianity and the church and your family and and just and still not make waves like just being gay wasn't one of those things it was yeah. like it's just not this is like a hard line in the sand yeah it wasn't optional and so obviously it did create challenges uh, we have overcome them but it was not like that wasn't easy it took a really long time and so like a lot of conversations and like the really interesting thing about that is that it, it is is that I still Although I don't identify with the church and I like I'm not Christian, I still maintain a lot of the practices um, yeah. of of the church. Like I still I still enjoy like Catholicism, for example. I, I still enjoy going to holiday services. Like from time to time, I will still meet people that I had known in my childhood or in my early 
more Christian days. Like I still get swept up in, in, in the Sunday service when I go back home to visit. Like yeah. when you're living in the American South, part of your experience is going to like going to church. And let me tell you, black church is really different. It's fun. Like it's like the Catholic church, perhaps not so much, but like, but when you're going to a black church, you are going to a show stopping Broadway production every single week. It is yeah. music. It is dancing. It is sheer jubilation. And you can't avoid being caught up in this type of energy yeah, um, power and the fellowship. Way. There really is. And yeah. so like you have those experiences and there is power in it. It, it is very comforting to be a part of that and you like you you have this music you you have this the, like gospel music it's rooted in so many black traditions and it's very centering and yeah like it, that still appeals to me well into my adulthood and yeah. if i were to have children which i won't but if i were to have children i would still want them to have those experiences as well and trying to compartmentalize them from the church is quite nearly impossible because yeah. it doesn't exist as its own entity like it's cultural um it's historical and yeah. so recognizing it and placing it within those contexts is really necessary so yeah exactly you can't just rationally recreate a completely secular version of that now and expect to you know get the same feel and the same richness and the same sense of history and community as well and it's fascinating because i think that's one of the difficulties is some people who've left a religious worldview become extremely negative about the whole enterprise and they forget some of the really powerful important things that run through a religious worldview. there is genuine and rich compassion there's a sense of community there's a sense of togetherness and, and i think you can access all of those things in a secular naturalistic worldview a sense of awe and wonder and connectedness and so on those things aren't you don't have to believe in magic to access that stuff. And let's not throw the baby out of the boat with the bathwater and write off everything about religious community and culture and, and the value people find in it too. So, And it's interesting the way you describe your journey, because for the people I've spoken to so far in this series, for the ones who've moved away from religion, for some, it was similar to yours. It was more of a sort of an ethical thing where you go, okay, whether this is true or not, that just doesn't feel right, whether it's about queerness or whether it's about suicide or dominion over animals, for example, or whatever it is, There's some ethics that go, this isn't right with me. And for others, it's more of a sort of technical evidence or reason thing where they read the Bible and they see the inconsistencies or they learn about different religions and go, you know, they conflict. And it's more a sort of facts don't stack up question. Was it a bit of both for you or was it more the ethics thinking this just doesn't fit? It was a bit of both. Um, yeah. And I think that like, just like factually things not stacking up, I guess this leads into the sort of journalistic streak <laughs> that, that appeals to me. But yeah, like you start, when, when you start actually pulling out your notebook and you're like, you're starting to see these inaccuracies and these inconsistencies and yeah, yeah like just timelines aren't adding up for me. And, yeah. and why, weren't this, the, why weren't the Gnostic gospels included? And yeah, what were the political decisions that went to, which yeah. is fascinating to explore, but at the same time, like it's, it, it starts to like chip away at this, at this space. So yeah, the ethics were one side of it, but like the sort of like the factual, like scholarly journey also was a contributing factor. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. And, and one of the reasons some people are hesitant about moving away from a religious worldview is because they're worried they're going to lose their moral foundations. There's the obvious trope of without God looking over our shoulder, we'd be running around murdering and killing people with abandon. And from my understanding of your, the way you live your life, you're not doing that. The second big question we ask is what matters morally? And in a way, there's two parts to that question. What is, since you have a sort of naturalistic way of thinking about the world, how do you ground your morality if it has a grounding at all? And there's a second part of the question, which is how should we choose which types of things to care about? And obviously, given the agenda of sentientism in your work, one of the really interesting points is at what point did we start to recognize that non-humans mattered too? So it's a question about grounding of morality in a naturalistic way of thinking. And what journey did you go on as you thought about your sort of scope of moral consideration? Yeah, I actually, I went down that rabbit hole. Absolutely. Really? Like fully. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like when it came to, because I was so like, I, I, I was so deeply connected to the church that for a very long time, like that was one of the constant questions that came up. How do you decide how to be a good person? Because obviously if you don't believe in God, then you're just running around, like you said, like murdering and, and pillaging and raping, like some sort of pirate. And I, I'm, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, 
perhaps I perhaps I'm just holding on to the leftover vestiges of my like Christian self and that's what's grounding me and then after a while I was just like that's definitely not it (laughs) at some point you realize no actually we can be moral agents without believing in a higher being and independently of independently of of any type of theological or spiritual uh connection whatsoever in fact i'm sure that other guests have probably addressed this too but there's feels to me like an even greater obligation to treat others with respect and like compassion and and just mutual understanding because if you don't believe that something happens after this life is over this life becomes so much more valuable because of it yeah like that's like this is this is our one moment and i don't want to waste that time being unkind or living in a way that brings harm to anyone else irrespective of their species or identity so yeah that seems like a really bad idea yeah and you jump straight to that idea of harm i it almost seems silly to say it but in in a way that's the basis of my morality too is thinking that needlessly causing suffering or harm is a bad thing which seems so obvious it's almost tautological but it does seem that many people disagree or veer from that path but that seems like a quite a sensible scientific naturalistic grounding for ethics where suffering is bad death is bad let's try not to cause them needlessly but one of the uh, difficult questions i think is that many probably most people on the planet would agree with us they would say yeah needlessly causing harm is a morally negative thing but for one reason or another they'll restrict that sort of sense of compassion or that sense of moral caring in a diff- in different ways so some people might do it because of a religious worldview that leads them to think about in-groups or out-groups or human exceptionalism and dominion over animals. Some people might come to those views without any sort of religious worldview, even in a naturalistic worldview, they might somewhat arbitrarily look at certain groups of um, humans and certainly groups of other species and you know, derogate them in certain ways or not extend compassion. And we'll return to you later because while I think there is this sort of compassion that most people have, it's often restricted in certain ways. So it'd be quite interesting to know your journey about how you went um, through that process of thinking about which types of entities matter. And obviously the human, non-human animal one is, is important, but it has implications through all of intrahuman ethics as well as we extend our compassion to the human species, what, you know, again, you can wind the clock back as far as you like, but what was your journey thinking about moral considerability? Yeah. Like, I, I think that in some ways, like the having, because we all have multiple identities, of course. Right. Yeah. I will probably ramble. Like, so I, I, apologies <laughs> in advance for being so completely stream of consciousness with this, but I have a complete inability to actually put this into an intelligible timeline where like I wind the clock back and I identify this ah, a moment because it was more like drips and drabs here or there and trying to find one or even a handful of them is an impossibility. But what I can say is having like multiple marginalized or minoritized identities and living in like the society that we do was really huge for me because the more minoritized identities that you have the more aware i think that you are of like the need for like actually being just being kind to one another and so like i i had that awareness very early on because you obviously experienced like the, the the trauma of racism and the inequality um and the disenfranchisement that you have by being queer by being femme of center and so for me yeah. it was really easy to see like the perhaps not the very first time but it was quite early on that i caught on to the fact that oh women experience systemic or institutional inequality based on their gender and and so these things are like they are in many ways very reciprocal and so it's like i experience this this sort of inequality based on race social class and and sexual orientation and you are aware that there is this hierarchy that 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 requires us to be more benevolent to one another faster because you're on the wrong end of it so you can see that yeah you're on the wrong end of it thank you (laughs) So, and for me, actually including other animals in that, once again, once that was made very clear to me, I'm like, oh, then I'm extending this to these other individuals as well. Why should it be restricted to species membership? And I didn't even have a sort of academic language to attach this to. 
it was just obvious. I'm like, like, who do we consider a person and why? Even in, even within our mainstream society, individual animals could be considered persons, but collectively, absolutely yeah. not. And this is not so dissimilar from whiteness. This is a very arbitrary and easily movable line who gets to be included in the club at different times. And, and if so, you're like, in the you wrong know, category... You're in trouble. Yeah, if you're in the wrong category, you're in trouble. And how easily that line can move based on certain circumstances and at different points in history. And so therefore, yeah, I'm like if we have, and I know that this is like such a tired thing to say, but if we have extended like the identity of personhood to our animal companion, what's what's the difference between that individual animal and other animals that we have systemically or institutionally disenfranchised. I just can't make that work for me. And so yeah. therefore I want as much consistency as I can create in my life as possible. It minimizes the, the, like the, like psychological experiences or limitations that I would otherwise have. So yeah. And so yeah, like I, I wanted that. And, and so it was very easily, it was very easy for me to incorporate non-human animals into that sphere. Yeah. And was that, that sounds like it was quite a quick realization and the direct. Oh, it absolutely was. Yeah. yeah. And how quickly did you play through the practical implications of that in terms of veganism or other impacts on your life? Was it like an intellectual recognition, but then it took some time to make the changes or was it just a no, this is it. I'm, I'm here now. And yeah, it was pretty straightforward. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to say that, like, I was perfect immediately. And yeah. of course, so there were many more. But you are, per- you are perfect happy. now. You are perfect now. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I'm great. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that's another interesting transition for many people is that switch to recognizing the uh, moral salience of non-humans and, you know, implementing that in their lives through veganism or something very like it is another quite culturally difficult thing for many people as well. Was that challenging for you? Or again, was that just something you, you could do and people around you supported it? Or I, once again, I, being very conflict avoidant, I didn't go around telling everybody right away. Now that I didn't have a, a somewhat evangelical like time of it myself shortly thereafter, but I, I like people were not supportive because I didn't give them an opportunity to be. I was very privately vegan, yeah. but but I was very even though I didn't have the language of speciesism, I was very keenly aware of what it looked like. And why I regarded it as a legitimate type of bigotry toward other animals that they can experience, which like, which is why I, I, I did go vegan very quickly, because if ideologically I recognize this as bigotry, then the practice of, of being of, of undoing that bigotry would, for me, clearly involve a change in lifestyle. Yeah. And so I like I immediately made that association. And what was hard for me was like when I did actually start having those conversations with other people was realizing that this was another front that created, as you had said yourself, in groups and out groups. And I was like deliberately choosing to, unlike other times in my life, I was making an active choice to to be a part of an out group, which is not fun. But increasingly, I'm learning that as you unlearn like all of the cultural and social indoctrination that you've been given um, as a child and start to drift further and further away from it and start to question things, you are going to become increasingly unpopular. Oh, <laughs> like what, what a surprise. So, so we're just adding that to the satchel of things that, 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 that come up. Yeah. Yeah. I'm taking another thing on. And the, one of the obvious challenges to this sort of approach that cares about all animals and in in the terminology of sentientism focuses on sentience the capacity to have experiences have a perspective if you like one challenge of course is you've gone too far only humans matter and in some situations only certain subgroups of humans really matter and we know the problems we're still working through on that front and you and i would have a common approach to rejecting that and saying no we do need to have broad compassion for all humans i think and we need to have broad compassion for all beings that are able to experience as well but there's another challenge to send that sort of sentientist approach which says hold on you're not going far enough they say actually there may be plants or living ecosystems or gaia or concepts like species and rocks and rivers they warrant direct moral consideration too, not just instrumental moral consideration because they're important to sentience, but we should care directly about those things in their own selves. What's your perspective on that angle? And do you draw a line between sort of in, intrinsic value and instrumental value? Or 
Yeah, like this is this is where it all falls apart for me because I don't have a really strong philosophical understanding of these things. So like I can only speak to my experiences individual. But yeah, like I I do I have encountered those arguments. I have encountered those discussions where people like then proceed to become plants rights activists and whatever have you. And it's like we need to extend this to to bodies as well. And every single blade of grass matters. And and I'm like, oh boy, this yeah. is that is that that to me is like going but of course other people probably think this of me as well. You're just like you're taking this too far and where does it end? But and then you get into once again these sort of like theoretical discussions, which I abhor because I'm like, well, either you are deliberately trying to obfuscate the issue or you're just going into pseudo-scientific babble because, because yeah, like it's how do you know that like rocks aren't sentient and how do you know that that blade of grass, <laughs> and we just don't understand it. Just we didn't understand animal sentience for like hundreds of years. And I'm like, well, okay, like our science and our understanding of the natural world at some point actually leads us to understand that every single blade of grass individually has sentience and then then it would warrant us actually and i would absolutely encourage anyone who's part of the scientific universe to study those things and find out how like blades of grass are sentient and if in fact they are but right now based on the best available information that we have don't be a lunatic and don't try to like, don't try to like obfuscate like what is obviously like an emergency right now for the animals and persons who are experiencing this institutional disenfranchisement because of our current our current system and the way that it's set up and i know that's probably the really unkind thing to say and that framing of it is probably ableist so i apologize for that but really like in in my mind like that's that's something that generally happens i'm like either you're like either you're going off to a place that is that exists purely in in the theoretical sense that is bordering on the absurd or what you are intentionally like trying to justify or rationalize the current system because it's impossible to care about all the blades of grass. And so I'm just going to, I'm going to eat bacon and wear leather or something. I don't know. Like, because you don't, you like, this makes you feel unsafe. This makes you feel uncomfortable in many ways. Yeah. And we see that all the time, like in other systems too. This isn't strictly limited to discussions of human and non-human animals and, and, and plant life. But we see this happening all the time when we talk about the psychology of racism. We even have sociological terms for it. We talk about like white fragility. We talk about male fragility and, and the like, and, and people introducing all of the whataboutism that, that, that goes with it. And, and so, yeah, like this is one of the ways that, that we create defense, defensive mechanisms in our minds and in, in our conversations to to hold on to that safer space where we don't have to have these really challenging discussions about how we treat other sentient, obviously, clearly sentient individuals on this planet. Yeah, I think I share that perspective entirely. And I think in my my view, fine, if you already have compassion for all sentient beings and you're open-minded that other things might eventually be proven to be sentient or you're open-minded about other things, that's fine. But if you seem to be richly concerned about the blades of grass, but you're still completely happy to have a bacon sandwich, there's something going ro- you know, deeply wrong there. It's a little disingenuous. Like- a little. A little. And, and in a way, that's part of my frustration with really the center of gravity of the mainstream environmental movement. They've almost gone to jump from an anthropocentric concern for humans, fine, and they've jumped to this sort of super generous moral consideration for the entire planet and Gaia's ecosystem and biodiversity and habitats and, and the climate and rocks and rivers and plants. Oh, great. But they've conveniently carved out, to your earlier point, by categorizing vast swathes of farmed and uh, wild animals completely out of their moral consideration. So I don't mind if you want to go further, but at least don't ignore the sentience. At least don't ignore the sentience. And that's yeah. part, partly the intent. I also like the way you said, look, let's stay open-minded, right? Because a naturalistic approach is always supposed to be open-minded. We're never 100% sure about anything. We should always be open to new evidence and new ideas, even crazy ideas. So fine. If you want to keep working on plant sentience, let's look at the evidence and see what it tells us. And I, I also like the way that you're open-minded about where these boundaries are, because in a way, assessing sentience has some risk as well, right? If we set that boundary wrong, we could cause enormous suffering. So let's keep that flexible too. And the way I'm framing sentientism doesn't have a list of sentient entities. It just says, follow the science and you know, be prudent. 
give the benefit of the doubt and use that as the boundary. And I think it also, personally, I take quite a hard, hard line approach. I say that in a way, the root of all moral value, all value ultimately is in the sentient experiences of each individual. I don't think there really is anything else that matters. So I take quite a hard line on that. But that still allows a very expansive concern for the environment and non-sentient entities because of the rich webs of connection and dependencies. Well, our planet isn't sentient, but it's important to me because it's important to all of the trillions of sentient beings that live on it, including you and me. So yeah. I think it, you can still have a very rich, expansive environmental concern, of course. And I think, but it's driven by a concern for sentient beings. So I don't know if you come across Mark Beckoff's, you know, compassionate conservation work. He's almost trying to take that corrective and say, look, we need to conserve, we need an environmental approach, but it's got to be compassionate about the individuals within those systems. That's, that, they're really the point. But yeah, so I like, I like the way you framed that. So. Yeah, no, strictly out of the feeling of enlightened self-interest, like, yeah, we do need to have this, this expansive environmental approach because, yeah, yeah we, we, like, as sentient persons ourselves, like, I have a best stake in making sure that, like, that we keep this planet alive, even if we don't regard it as itself a sentient entity. But, yeah, so the, that, that is a frustration that I share with the current state of the environmental movement. One of the difficulties, even within, I think, much of the animal advocacy and the vegan movement is that there's even there's still some selectivity there, I think, too. And one of the really tricky issues is the concept of wild animal suffering. And for many people, including me, draw quite a clear line between far, out, out farmed animals, given what humans do to them in a breathtakingly horrific scale around the world, and, and categorise the challenges of wild animal suffering differently. But for me, because wild animals are sentient as well, I still think that matters morally. It doesn't mean the problems are easy to solve <laughs> at all, right? And we should be very cautious and careful about how and whether we do things there. But some people in the vegan and the animal advocacy movements almost seem to disregard wild animal suffering completely on the basis that it's just part of nature and therefore it must be in some way Good. And I should have asked yeah. you a more open question before just telling you my, my answer. But what's your, what are your thoughts on, I guess, the salience or otherwise of wild animal suffering? Yeah, no, I think that you're exactly right. So like you telling me your answer is just like, you know, Sorry. me <laughs> giving a chance to, no, that's just giving me a chance to say, yeah, on brother, a hundred percent. Like I, I, I share that. I think that like many of the current conceptions that exist in the animal rights and animal liberation communities are like, are, are very limited, sometimes unsophisticated. And I don't blame anybody for that because I once shared that. This was like, what you're describing is something that like I had at the very beginning of my journey. And what's really funny is that although I like, I'm not exactly a student of philosophy myself, I have done a lot of reading, particularly around like these sort of eco-feminist circles and anthropological circles yeah. and these understandings of these things. And so you have the writings of say, Carol Adams or, or Patrice Jones, who, who talk about like the sort of feminist take on, on animal liberation and like an expanding that one dimensional analysis of, oh, we just simply will not farm animals and then everything else will sort itself out because wild animals are just going to do whatever they do. And there's this like perceived benevolence of the natural world and it's just fine. And I'm like, no, I would love to take those conceptions just a little bit further. I think that having healthcare as a fundamental right of all sentient persons, irrespective of species membership, is something that is an absolute necessity. Being able to not just live with dignity, but also die with dignity as best we are able to do that. Is, is so very important and so vastly overlooked by the current animal liberation circles because we overly concern ourselves, perhaps to our detriment. In fact, I would say to our detriment with the like concerns of animal agriculture and animal farming and, and the property status alone. And I think that it is a limiting factor because I think that a lot more people would probably be on board with us if we broadened our understanding of animal liberation to include wild and free living animals too. And because we would be able to find more opportunities, I think, to identify crossover with other movements if we did. And that the fact that we don't is like a continual source of disappointment for me. Yeah. Work in progress. And I think some of the themes around that, some of the blockers have some common elements, I think. One is this problem seems really difficult and complex. Another is humans have caused so much damage already, partly through intervening in the wild. I'm really nervous about us 
doing something, even if we have good intent. Part of it is this sort of natural nature fallacy of if it's in nature, it's good. And that links in some ways back to that sort of religious way of thinking that there's something super natural or super ordinate that, you know, defines what things are okay, even if there's much suffering being caused. So there's some interesting links there. But yeah, again, I share your view. So we've covered what's real and we've covered what matters. And the next question is another really easy one, which is how do we make the world a better place? So I I like to start by trying to get my guests to be somewhat utopian and some of them just slap me down and pull me back to reality very brutally. But I guess it's still an interesting question to ask, right? Despite all of the challenges of human psychology and the cognitive dissonance and the blockers and the biases and the cultural inertia around improving, if we could magically flick a switch and get to a point where more of the 8 billion people on the planet are genuinely broadly compassionate for all different types of humans and all sentient beings and took a more naturalistic approach that was less drawn into woo or superstition or believing things without evidence. One, what could that future look like? And you can go sci-fi utopian if you like and paint a future. Or, and the second question is, okay, how can we best get there in terms of driving change and recognizing that while it might be simple to say we care about all sentience and we want to resist all oppression, that hides a complex morass of intersecting different problems. How the hell do we fix it all? (laughs) Boy, yeah. So I guess magic pixie dust. I think that the easy way to identify like the world that I would love to craft is uh, Star Trek. Like it's a very, that's the vision. I know it's probably pretty cliche, but honestly, like I, this, this does tie to a lot of the work that I personally do, just identifying the links to our existing society and like the problems in our society and teaching people about these problems through pop culture. And you have this amazing pop culture, like icon that like that has withstood the test of time in many ways that is is an easy thing to hang this philosophical belief or philosophical understanding onto in star trek you do have this like society that is that is actually a a vegan society like you can cite several episodes in which they talk very specifically about the enslavement of other beings and the lack of of course like you still have all of these political ambitions and and and, and all of these other like slight challenges. I shouldn't say slight challenges, but challenges that come up. Otherwise, it would be a very boring show. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> but overall, talk about like a fantastical world building. Uh, Gene Roddenberry and largely all of the iterations of Star Trek that have come from his from the universe that he built has crafted this framework of the type of society that I would love for us to see. And we don't have to wait for the 24th century for it to happen. And, and yeah, that that is that's like architecturally, that's what the world would look like. And indeed, the universe would yeah. look like or what I would aspire for it to look like. And like pop culture, again, like it, you you have the, the tools there for people to like to see what this will look like in practice. And it's and it's an easy way for, for people because number one, it's relatable. And number two, it is not very confrontational. And so yeah. like you you have this non-confronting way of introducing people to the the bigger ideas and like the, the type of political am- imagination and ambitions that we should aspire to. Like Star Trek didn't come out and say, hey, you shouldn't be racist, but you also have the first interracial kiss on television. Star Trek doesn't say that, it, that women should have their own autonomy, but you very clearly see women and particularly black women in positions of power and authority in one of in, in the most important place on the ship. You like they don't say that you should be vegan, but they obviously are exploring other worlds where sentient persons exist. And oh, my, what would that look like if we didn't seek them out to eat them? Uh, or otherwise enslave them (laughs) and they weren't doing the same thing to us what what does that look like and so you you have this and it is a post-scarcity society and we also already have the tools to make that happen and yet we do lack the political imagination to make that happen and so when you ask the second part of your question how do we like manifest that yeah i think that it starts with 
and perhaps we've already started it, but I think that it starts with us recognizing the limitations of the capitalist machine in which we live and starting to take that apart and and put it back together as something that is beneficial to all of us. We can't continue living this way. COVID has taught us that. The environmental crisis or the climate emergency is teaching us that. And that's a lesson that we had better learn very soon. We've got a very limited window in order to get our act together or else face our own um, mortality in a very graphic way so yeah like i think that is that's the beginning of it like i'm 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 sorry equal parts cynical and hopeful like that's that's all i wanted to say yeah and the uh, it's interesting because the star trek future like we said it's post-scarcity and we've got to that post-scarcity world partly through i guess an unashamed development of technology and innovation that has enabled us to be post-scarcity so we can have a more egalitarian society and i think there's a difference in that view which feels more like it's moving forward to a different world that's enabled by human ingenuity to some degree and compassion whereas there are others who i think have similar ends right they'd like to get to a a better world but they feel we can get there by rolling the clock back and going back to the way things used to be and I, i just don't see i don't see that's a positive way forward i think it's it's naive and it underestimates the historical challenges that we've all worked through. So I like the Star Trek vision because it is one that's more you know, progressive in many senses. But at the same time, it's quite it's easier to imagine a political system and an economic system that has maybe gone beyond capitalism once you're in a post-scarcity state. But of course, we're not. We don't feel like we're in a post-scarcity state at the moment. And there's an enormous nervousness about radically or too radically changing or even destroying capitalism at this point because it feels like it's the engine for some of the progress that might get us to a Star Trek future. So do you have a sense of, and in a way, this sort of idea of sentientism doesn't have a specific political stance at all, right? It just says naturalism and sentiocentric compassion, that's it. So there are people who call themselves sentientists who are anarchists, communists, socialists, liberal democrats, neoliberals, boring centrists, you know, the, the sort of span the political spectrum because they have different views about how to make the world a better place but they all want to make the world a better place but do you have a view about what that you know post-capitalist system would look like and how it would work and also how it would avoid some of the pitfalls that previous attempts have fallen into because one of the again you can look at history in a variety of different ways we don't have to repeat those mistakes but one of the challenges when people have moved to a different model from capitalism that it falls into a trap of authoritarianism and restrictions on freedom that actually cause new types of oppression. So how do we go beyond the capitalistic system in your mind without falling into that trap of just creating new forms of oppression, even though it's well-motivated? That was a massively long question. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, it's a question that has a lot of arms and legs and I'm like, it would be ambitious for me to try to answer all of those, all of those. So yeah, if, if I had the time to write a book, I would definitely like try to address as much of that as possible. I do like there, boy, there's a reason why I, I, I tell you that I'm a journalist and a, a researcher and a social media specialist. I don't consider myself an activist. I'm certainly no economist. And so I, I work with the best information that I got at this time. What I can say is that in, in the world that we're currently living in, like capitalism has been demonstrated to not be the best system. And you can say that this is my perspective as a product of like Marxist framing or like background with which like I hang my opinions on. But what the future would look like, I honestly don't know. I think that capitalism invariably will or inevitably lend itself to authoritarianism, as you described it, because the more insecurity that people experience, whether that is economic insecurity, like something needs to step in to fill that void. And historically speaking, we've seen authoritarianism do that quite nicely because you like you you have this fear and and authoritarianism actually capitalizes upon that fear capital once again and and exploits it because that is it's an exploitative system by its very definition and so what do we do i think that in my very extraordinarily humble opinion like i would say that we we do have to like i, I don't there's not one answer really yeah. there's not one economic answer there's not one socio-political answer i think that we have to enter into a space where you let a thousand flowers bloom because we are like all very different and like in in different societies everything is not going to work exactly the same for 
for various groups of persons on this planet. Is this like going to be a, a socialist or a, a social democratic or like a communist system? I don't know. I would allow people the autonomy to sort themselves out as best as they can possibly. And I just want people to not die. Yeah. We do live in a society where we literally throw thousands of, of kilos of food away every day where we like are, are we, we produce more clothes than we can ever wear in five lifetimes and we create this amount of waste that is just like insidious to me like i hate the fact that that we recognize that like plastics are killing the planet and yet i can't go to the grocery store and buy exclusively things that don't contain plastics in them yeah even when i try to like buy like things that are wrapped in paper then you like go online a little bit later on and you discover that oh there's actually a thin plastic coating on this paper that makes it like not biodegradable and not recyclable and so therefore you created more waste and so it's what is this this is all capitalism this is all capitalism and so i, I hate to be that guy but like it, it, he says in parentheses i actually don't <laughs> like I, I i love being that guy but but yeah, like this is like I think that it's very clear that this is in a, a desolate failure, and there's no reforming this. And more more specifically, what like capitalism is tied to 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 race. Capitalism is tied to anti-blackness, and so like where you have these like very big, lofty philosophical like ideas and 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 ideologies, like me and my like. I'm grounding things very differently, I recognize, from those like philosophical underpinnings. And I'm just like looking around and saying that like these are the things that like that I have concerned myself with in the everyday. The the banality of our existence living in this system that is deeply bigoted toward other persons based on our race, our gender, our our social orientation, our species. And that is absolutely in married to in, in the suicide pact with this economic system that is killing us and, and taking out as many other species as we can. Yeah, like I would call for the full abolition of it. And I know that it is really scary, but I gotta say, it's actually really scarier knowing that the winters are getting really short and we have approximately 40 more harvests left in, in, in England, like right now, because we like our agricultural system has been depleted again because we don't know anything else and we're not really invested in trying anything else because like different is scary and it's we have to be slightly more adventurous than that we we literally have to our alternatives are to be more adventurous or face the the horrific consequences of it in the very near future i know which one i would definitely choose perhaps people are on the other side of that i don't know <laughs> like maybe they're like let's see about those consequences and just roll the dice it seems some are, right? But and I, I must say I'm disappointed you haven't designed a perfect utopian solution for us all to adopt. No, but I'm sure I it's know. only a, I'm sure it's only a matter of time. But I loved what you said that in a way, you know, I like the utopian thinking in the Star Trek future because in the sense that uh, I think we're winning enough of the arguments that we do actually need to spend more time telling a story about how things can be different as well as challenging the way things are now. But there's also a danger of being too specific. If you just pick one utopia, that's just what I've come up with, right? And I, I love the idea you said, which we don't know the answer, right? Flowers bloom, individuals have different perspectives, have different needs. We just need to find a way of making that happen. But these things are breathtakingly complex, right? Because in a way, in a sense, that's partly how we got to capitalism, right? You start from individual freedom and taking choices and interacting and transacting. And I would argue that has done some good in terms of global poverty or various other challenges, but it's also led to really deep, awful problems as well, like many of the ones we're facing. So it's, it is, yeah, I, neither of us have the perfect answer. And in a way, I've suggested that in the face of my you know, ignorance and then maybe our collective uncertainty about what the right answer is in terms of economics or politics, I think any political system would at least work better if everybody was a sentientist. So if, if people took a naturalistic worldview and had broad sentiocentric compassion for all sentient beings, I think communism would work better, socialism would work better, even capitalism would work better. It'd all work better if people adopted that worldview and that set of values. So that's partly my excuse for 
why I'm staying out of the political debates and saying, okay, let's at least upgrade our values and our epistemology and maybe that will help, but let's see. You know, like I, I struggle with this because I, I feel the same way, but then then I wake up on a different morning in a different mindset. And I'm like, <laughs> if, if we, even within a sentientist framework, absent of a, a, a socio-political analysis, yeah. what does that actually mean? It's because, not enough. Like, you know, like, I, I think that yeah. there are people who, like, I think that it's, fairly well established that I am like the biggest lefty. So there's no secret there. I recognize where my biases are. Okay. Yeah. But, but if we actually take, if we take a person who is a sentient and has a different socio-political analysis, yeah. like that is completely opposite of mine. I'm just trying to say in a very roundabout way, we take somebody who's on the extreme right of the political spectrum. They clear their sentientism actually hasn't been like, like, what does it matter? Because you can be a sentientist and you can still be frankly like you can still not observe the reality that like you know that the world that you're actually actively working for yeah specifically disenfranchises some sentient person i just don't see how these things are compatible yeah and perhaps they are but like i've not observed it <laughs> like i just i just simply have not and i would love for someone to like you know to actually show me and demonstrate that because i'm again i'm not saying that i have the answers but from my own observations like i do once again as we taken back to the beginning of this conversation, I see only inconsistencies here that are impossible to reconcile. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I, but then again, like I wake up the next day and I'm like, well, perhaps sentientism is that maybe like that's, that is a way forward and we can make it work like with, without a sociopolitical analysis or, or, or I just, I, I just, I, I don't know. I do, I, I go back and forth. But I think you're right. I think one, for me, this idea of sentientism it's, it's not the complete answer. It cannot be, right? It's In a way, it's just a baseline. It's a starting point. And there's still so much to fight over and argue over and so much more detail that we need to actually work out what to do. Just caring about all sentient beings and just following evidence and reason doesn't give you all the answers. So it's absolutely not a sufficient answer. And I think we do need sociopolitical analysis, economic analysis, so much more we've got to work through. It's, it's not a complete answer. It's it's just a baseline, hopefully a sensible baseline. And one of the other topics, and I know you focus on heavily on your work, is this distinction or the links between individuals, individual sentient beings and groups and identities and how all of those different factors intersect and, and relate in different ways. And again, in the time we've got, I ask you to <laughs> solve that. Again, there is no perfect answer. But what's your sense about the best way to approach those different issues and their intersections in a constructive way, if such thing is possible. Because what I see is, for example, I'll see people wanting to take an intersectional approach that recognizes the deep importance of groups and identities to individuals and their situations. And those groups and identities and the combinations confer disadvantages and advantages and privileges in different situations. And that's very complicated and, and powerful. But I see sometimes people will stop at the level of the group or the identity or the clusters of them and the intersections. And they'll be hesitant about recognizing that in a silly way, maybe the ultimate intersectionality recognizes that each of us are individual, distinct, unique, sentient beings, right? Human and non-human. And that sometimes that group level analysis can obscure the lived experience of each individual. So I've never quite worked out how in my mind to play that through, because one of the other challenges I see is some people, not all, but some people will focus on the distinctiveness of that lived experience, but will define it in such a way that implies it's almost completely un impossible for us to understand each other. And that to me fragments, I guess, what we might hope to achieve together more, more than it needs to. So again, I don't have answers here, but I'm interested in how you work those things through yourself and uh, how you suggest others do. <laughs> boy, oh boy. Yeah. Like another, you don't ask easy questions. That's a, Sorry. But like, <laughs> I, I guess to, to start, since you, like you said the magic word intersectional and, and or intersectionality, like, you know, to start, I should definitely say that I am not what one would consider consider like an, an intersectional like I do think that incorporating an intersectional analysis is important, but only in so far as centering black women is important because intersectionality as like a as an analytical tool was initially invented for Wasn't black it? women. And so you have this amazing analytical tool, but the people for whom it was created are still experiencing like disparate outcomes. Here we are like 30, 40 years later. And so it's like so for me, that is is one of the limitations. 
Also, the person who created or coined this term, like she herself doesn't incorporate an animal analysis into yeah. that work. And so for me, just, I don't know, like, I, I, like in my own world, if the person who like created this framework, which I think is an amazing, thoughtful and provocative framework, doesn't actually incorporate other animals into this analysis. And it's not like she's dead. It's not this was like, but she lived a hundred years ago. And yeah. so we're arguing about her work. No, she's like, she's, she's it, at Columbia. She's a couple of doors down from me whenever I go to New York. And so, so yeah, we actually have her to ask and, and she does not, at least to my knowledge at this time. So I feel very uncomfortable taking that and uh, yeah. applying it in a copy paste fashion to the work that I would want to be seen around animal liberation. But another thing that you mentioned is that the, the way that people utilize or instrumentalize intersectionality doesn't really work for me either. Again, this is no disrespect to, to, to it as an analytical tool. And I do think that it's important yeah. and very useful, but, but not universally. And because in, invariably you will have competing groups of identities and or clusters of them as you like, as you very rightly pointed out. And you see this happening all the time when people like talk about ableism in particular, I think that is mm -hmm. like one of the most fascinating examples of of how you can have like different groups within the same like within the same cluster or within the same category who have vastly different and in many circumstances competing needs because mm -hmm. when we talk about disability it's usually at least in terms of animal liberation it's usually in terms of oh like veganism is like so classist and ableist because not everybody has access to plant-based foods at all times okay like setting aside the like extraordinarily nauseating like limited view of what veganism is like you know what you're absolutely right and so you're prioritizing in this example, the needs of people with disabilities who cannot, for whatever reason, have access to plant-based foods like that are compatible with their disability. But you're also completely throwing out the people who are made disabled by the machine of industrial animal agriculture, the people who are made physically disabled working within that machine, or who have to live in proximity to that machine, or, or who experience damaged psychological outcomes as a product of that machine. So, so you've got two different disparate groups within this sub this, this subcategory of, of, of disability. And yeah, like their needs are, they, they compete with one another. And so therefore, yeah, you know what, I see this as, as a limiting factor of the way that a lot of people talk about intersectionality. And, and so it's just another example of why I don't find it to be a really like useful framework for this in particular. Like I do see or recognize a need for us to, to be able to come together and at least have productive discussions instead of shutting those discussions down about like how identities actually do intersect in different ways yeah. or more specifically how they can interact better and that is, that's one of the things that I don't see happening very frequently, because I think that if we are actually able to come to the table with good intention and, and bring our best selves to the discussion, then we can find out how we can cohabitate on this planet with each other more productively yeah. and allow one another to flourish. And so, but I, I, I do see a lot of bad actors and a lot of bad faith arguments being made. And that's really disappointing because I'm like, I think that when you don't bring your best self and you're actually using identity as a weapon, I, I, I like, I see that as, as one of the major challenges to, to living in that egalitarian society that takes the needs of all sentient persons into consideration. Yeah. Makes sense. And I'm not naive. I don't think any one person at the current state of technology can completely understand the experience of another. We just, we're never going to perfectly understand each other, but that doesn't mean we can't understand each other at all. I think we can at least get far enough to be able to collaborate and cooperate and that understanding would always be flawed. And I think that's part of the challenge that you're referencing. And I see too, is that there's a real danger that in ref respecting and understanding the sheer variety of different challenges that people face. We let those challenges then fragment us instead of finding where there is common ground that we can work together and we can help each other and we can try and you know, edge towards that Star Trek future. So, yeah. And I think it's there, right? It's there because of our common evolutionary history. It's there because of our, our architecture and the way we operate. It's there because overlaps between different aspects of our cultures. There's this commonality we can tap into there. Yeah. Throughout this conversation, I think you and I share this sense that most human beings do have a some degree of innate 
compassion, right? Most people wouldn't voluntarily want to cause suffering or harm. But at the same time, given cultural norms, social indoctrination of various forms, patterns of behavior, economic and political systems we're part of, people's behavior and action is very different from that sort of compassionate approach. And you would like to hope that just by talking and explaining things, the light would go on and everyone would agree with us, right? We get 7 billion people to watch this podcast and all of a sudden we'd be heading towards the Star Trek future. But you and I know that just, it works with some people, it absolutely does, but it doesn't seem to work with that many people very far. So what's your sense of, across all of the issues we've discussed, given that frustration of this sort of latent ability for humans to be good and the reality of what we see, how can we shift things? Is it just a matter of talking and persuading and engaging and doing that hard moral work, or are there some shortcuts or you know other things we can do? <laughs> boy, oh boy, yeah. Like I think that like okay, a couple of things here. Ah, curse you. You I'm have sorry. once again not asked an easy question. I will try to. I will try to summarize and be brief. I, I definitely think that one of the things that you address, which is what, just talk to people and, and they will change. That's, that sounds great. That's the logical approach, isn't it? We're not Vulcans. So once again, call back to the earlier part of the discussion. Yeah. Just like everything is rooted in, in logic and, and rationality. And, and recognizing that is something that I think is, is vitally important because so many people try to approach their work from that perspective. It's if I just clearly explain this to somebody, then they'll get it. And if that has not worked, that hasn't yeah. worked for any other like disadvantaged group. Um, like, yeah, if I just explain racism, then maybe it'll go away. Spoiler alert, it didn't. To a human being, yeah. Yeah, that's not, that's, so it sounds really great on the surface. And like, and it still surprises me that so many people try that approach, which again, as you said, it works with some people, not all. But this actually does tie very nicely into like the, the study of mass communication and in particular social media and the way mm-hmm. that it can be used positively. Because the more that we understand about how we can communicate with one another effectively, the more refined our tools will be to that end. And that's that's just one of those things. I do think that like you, you were talking again about compassion as well. That was another part of your question. I'm sorry, it's just coming back to me. And how and how we apply compassion. And and again. And it, I think it, it bears discussing a lot of the like socio-political research that's being done. Like social psychologist Jonathan Haidt actually talks about this, I think, in a couple of his books, and indeed in in a few of his TED talks as well. Like he's all over the place; you can find it. But but yeah, it's like our understanding of it, each other needs to be improved. And what do I mean by that? Like once upon a time, 10 years ago, you couldn't tell me anything about anyone who was like to my immediate right on the political spectrum because everybody who was like, everybody who was to the right of me was just automatically stopped. Yeah, you'd written written them off. I've already written them off. First of all, this is a very lonely place to be in, not a very effective means of communicating or getting across like any type of messaging. So like I should have recognized right away that was going to be absurd on its face. But what's really important is having access to to political and psychological research is such a gift because one of the things that I had discovered through Height and others who had been studying this for quite some time is that it's not an absence of compassion in other people that, that we're seeing. It is the fact that we all apply compassionately compassion differently. Mm -hmm. So it is the selective, like, you know, application of compassion that we're observing, and we're calling it a lack of, and that is inaccurate to do. And my discovery was that it's not that people on to my political right are lacking in compassion. It's just their calculation is different from mine. And whereas I apply it very broadly, they apply it very narrowly to their specific social groups. And so it's there, but it's just understanding how that group is constructed. Yeah. And and so their 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 in-groups are very are much smaller. And indeed, the way that they assess risk is very different from myself as well. And it creates this whole world of, of, of cultural differences that I just was completely unaware of. And so when you when I started to understand people different from myself, like when I started to understand these things, patterns started to make sense. I was listening to, I think, not the last um, episode of uh, sentientism, but the one right before that talking about, well, you don't have to be, like you don't have to be on the political left in order to believe oh, in Josh, sentientism. Yeah. 
Yes, with Josh. Thank you. And that's absolutely true. But broadly speaking, understanding the way that like the way that people operate within their cultural, like social and political sorting is really important. People like myself are more adventurous in our eating, trying different ethnic cuisines and people to the right of me are more like eating potatoes in this bit. Like my people are more like their understanding of like companion animals is as property. Like they're more into specific dog breeds, for example, just small examples of our perceptions of the animals that we share this planet with, like at, at, that really like, you know, help me to understand, oh, this is, this is where people are and this is why. And in many ways there are actually biological components to this as well. They're not huge, but they're also not zero. And we should recognize that. And so, so yeah, incorporating that analysis into it was like was absolutely earth shattering for my my paradigm that 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 compassion isn't absent in others it's just the way that we have learned to apply compassion is very different mm. and that 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 transformed my approach to these conversations in a very very meaningful way because it allowed me to not view people as scum <laughs> and, and completely write them off as we as we observe and and it allows me to be able to communicate more effectively and what tools need to be applied in order to reach different audiences and incorporating their own assess, assessments of risk as well so that so that we all are 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 better off yeah because of it so that's that is like a very long-winded answer to to your question but, but yeah I like it. And, and I think we have seen some positive social changes happen remarkably quickly in the past. And that was before we had this level of understanding of each other and before we had social media tools. So maybe we can drive radical Star Trek change even more quickly now. Let's see. There's, of course, there's risks in that too. But the other thing that I found deeply important there is that one of the things I have to remind myself about this sort of sentientist idea is universal compassion, right? So the idea is you have compassion for you know, all sentient beings, but that needs to include yourself. And it also needs to include having compassion for people you disagree with. And that's the hardest thing. And I think what you laid out there of just opening your mind up to the fact that these people aren't, they're not evil people, right? They think differently. They have different values. They have different histories. They've been indoctrinated in their own ways, as we all have. In a way, engaging with each other with compassion, one is just ethically a better way of doing it. But to your point, you're more likely to be effective in your communications as well. Yeah, that's a hopeful note to, to maybe wrap up on. It's been an inspiring conversation. Thank you so much. And I'm looking forward to, yeah, progressing towards that Star Trek future with you. What's the best way of people following you, learning about your work, supporting you? I can include yeah, all the links uh, well, as usual in the show notes. Of course, there's like half a dozen links. Um, let's see. I'm like, you can find me on Facebook, but like I've like maxed out all of the people on Facebook that I can actually have. So uh, regrettably, if you type in my name, you can find me and follow me. Uh, Instagram, always fun. I am listed as the underscore Christopher underscore Sebastian. And my Twitter account is like so inactive. It's not even funny. So I'm not even going to bother with that. But if you wanted to give me money, like I'm also on Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash Christopher Sebastian. And, and, and really that's just a means to like, to keep up with all of the latest things that I'm writing with like articles that I have and like presentations that I would be doing or all of the, those other wonderful things. So yeah. Oh, and also my website, which again, it's embarrassing that I have not given it the love and attention that it needs in like more than a year, but I'll give it to you anyway. It's, it's ChristopherSebastian.info, not .com or .net or .org. It's ChristopherSebastian.info. And I promise that if you visit it, I will update it very soon. But try not to do that, at least until like June. I have a thousand things going on. Visit, sign up for the email list, but don't look too closely for a while. Don't look too closely for a while. So that's, that's it. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more, and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?